Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Now something I really didn't expect to enjoy as much as I did. You're listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones. The podcast about 20th century country music and the lives of those who gave it to us. My name is Tyler Mahan Co. I've heard these stories my whole life. As far as I can tell, here's the truth about this one. And even if you think that a podcast about country music doesn't really sound like your cup of tea, then do give it a listen. I'll speak to Tyler, who puts cocaine and rhinestones together in just a minute. Basically, he comes from a well-known country music family, was working as a professional musician in his dad's band, but then left and hadn't quite found his niche. But he loves country music and couldn't find any good country podcasts to listen to, so decided he was going to make one himself. And I do mean himself, it's just him doing it all, the research, the scripting, the editing, the recording and the sound engineering, learning as he goes. He's 14 episodes in so far and apparently each one takes him about 100 hours to put together. Anyway, enough yakking, I'd like you to hear some of it. Here's a clip from the fourth episode of Cocaine and Rhinestones, which tells the story of Bobby Gentry and her 1967 hit, Ode to Billy Joe. Delta day I was out chopping cotton and my brother was bailing hay and at dinner time we stopped and walked back to the The song was originally planned as the B-side of her first solo single but then the musical arranger Jimmy Haskell got involved and introduced some strings. And then she said, I got some news this morning from Choctaw Ridge. Today, Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. Papa said to Mama as he passed around the black eye. The cinematic approach is most evident near the end, when the strings go up with the narrator going up on Choctaw Ridge to pick flowers, and the strings going down when the narrator throws the flowers down off the bridge. And may I spend a lot of time picking flowers up on Choctaw Ridge and drop them into the muddy water off the Tallahatchie Bridge. By the time Haskell gets done with the song, Capitol Records has a problem. It's too good for the B-side of a record. The staff producer assigned to work with Bobby is a brand new hire named Kelly Gordon. At the next A&R meeting, Kelly submits both Mississippi Delta and Ode to Billy Joe for consideration as Bobby Gentry's first A-side. Bobby's original demo of Ode to Billy Joe was seven minutes long. Kelly Gordon had to chop it down to 4 minutes and 15 seconds just so it would fit on one side of a 45 RPM 7-inch. 
But that was still a full minute and 15 seconds longer than any record company wanted a single to be. DJs were more likely to play shorter singles to pack more songs in between commercial breaks. As a result, labels had a tendency to think of three minutes as the limit for any song with hit potential. Still, there was something about this song. The suits at that meeting rightly chose Ode to Billy Joe for the A-side. Mississippi Delta was moved to the B-side, and from there, everything got real crazy, real fast. The single was released in July of 1967. By the end of August, it was the number one song in America. It would eventually rise to the top 20 on country charts, but this is a pop song. Bobby Gentry was never a country artist. And I'm not doing that whole authenticity thing. I don't believe she ever set out to make country music. Was her music Southern? Absolutely, yes. But so was Gone With The Wind. So was everything that came out of Stax Records in Memphis. Probably the quickest way to show you what I mean is just to let you hear a clip of Bobby doing Doug Kershaw's classic, Louisiana Man. Well, I can hardly wait until tomorrow comes around. That's the day my papa takes the first to town. Papa done promised me that I could go. He'd even let me see a cowboy show. Okay, so we're all on the same page here, right? This is not country music. You could say it's like pop music about country music. So then why am I talking about Bobby Gentry on a podcast about country music, right? Okay. Like other not country things, such as Hawaiian steel guitars, 80s hair metal, and pop music in general, Bobby's music had a huge impact on country music. We have to talk about her for context before we can even begin to talk about, for instance, Harper Valley PTA, which I'm going to do a few episodes after this one. Sheryl Crow and Katie Lang have both hired Jimmy Haskell when they wanted that Bobby Gentry sound. Lucinda Williams cites Bobby as one of her strongest early influences. But Bobby also influenced basically every other genre of music. Ode to Billy Joe won a Grammy Award for Jimmy Haskell and three Grammy Awards for Bobby Gentry. Lou Donaldson's jazz cover of the song has one of the most sampled drum breaks in hip-hop history. It's on nearly 200 songs. Kanye West, Jesus Walks. Cause the devil's trying to break me down. A Tribe Called Quest, Clap Your Hands. Lauren Hill. But then an angel came one day, told me to kneel down and pray. Snoop. 
and that's just music. Odabilly Joe was a revelation for many people's understanding of what could be accomplished in narrative fiction. Bobby's handwritten lyrics to the song are in the University of Mississippi archives next to works by other Mississippi authors like William Faulkner and Tennessee Williams. If pop music can be considered high art, and I believe that it can, then that's what this is. And for anyone who still hasn't heard it, who ignored my earlier suggestion, this is your last chance to pause and listen before I really get into it. All right. The reason Ode to Billy Joe is respected as literature is because it tells a story as good as any short story by any other author you'd like to name. The music writer Griel Marcus was driving somewhere the first time he heard the song on the radio, and he became so focused on it that he crashed into the car ahead of him in traffic. It's narrated by a female character who does not tell us her name. In fact, four of the five verses in the song take place around her family dinner table, but we're not told the names of any of those people either. Father, mother, brother, all nameless. Every character in the song she isn't related to has a name. The first name we hear is Billy Joe McAllister, and that's because Billy Joe has jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. We're never explicitly told that Billy Joe died from jumping off the bridge, but it's safe to assume he did based on the response from our narrator's family. Or rather, on how she seems to expect a certain response where there isn't one. Her mother eventually asks why she hasn't eaten anything, but it's more about how long the mother spent cooking the meal than it is about why the daughter's leaving it untouched. The second name we get is Tom. That's who the narrator's brother remembers hanging out with when they and Billy Joe McAllister put a frog down the back of the narrator's dress at a movie theater. Third name, Brother Taylor. He's the local preacher who came by earlier in the day. He's probably the source of the news of Billy Joe's death, and he apparently mentioned that he'd recently seen a girl who looked a lot like our narrator up on the Tallahatchie Bridge with Billy Joe. They were throwing something off that bridge. The last name we get is Becky Thompson. It's a year after the dinner table scene from the previous four verses. The narrator's brother has married Becky and moved to Tupelo. The narrator's father caught a virus and died in the last year. Her mother is devastated by the loss. These days, our narrator spends a lot of time picking flowers and throwing them into the water off the Tallahatchie Bridge. In that quick recap, I rolled right through something that has driven people out of their minds for half a century. Some of you probably didn't even notice. By all accounts, it was never meant to be such a big deal. But listeners became obsessed with figuring out what it was that Billy Joe McAllister and this girl had been seen throwing off that bridge. Theories run the spectrum from plausible to ridiculous, but before I get into it, here's the one and only correct answer straight from Bobby Gentry herself, repeated on multiple occasions. It doesn't matter at all what was thrown off the bridge. It's called a MacGuffin, and it's pretty much always been a thing in storytelling. A screenwriter who often worked with Alfred Hitchcock came up with a word for it, and that's what we've called it since the 1930s. Probably the most well-known example of a MacGuffin from modern times would be the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. The plot of the entire movie centers around that briefcase. We never find out what's in it, and it doesn't matter because the movie's great. That's what a MacGuffin is. It's a random little anything used by a storyteller to move a plot forward. Other examples from movies would be the Maltese Falcon in The Maltese Falcon or the Monolith in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Sometimes you find out more about the MacGuffin, sometimes not. 
The thing about the MacGuffin in Ode to Billy Joe is that it's so subtle, you can listen to this song 50 times and never notice that it's there. Except, radio DJs, music writers, people like me, <laughs> pretty much the entire media, grabbed onto it in July of 1967 and never let go. Anyone can use a MacGuffin. There's nothing special about it. It may be what generated so much of the original hype, but this song isn't still held in such high critical regard because it made us all wonder what was thrown off a bridge. In Bobby Gentry's own words, as told to the interviewer Fred Bronson, The song is sort of a study in unconscious cruelty, but everybody seems more concerned with what was thrown off the bridge than they are with the thoughtlessness of the people expressed in the song. What was thrown off the bridge really isn't that important. Everybody has a different guess about what was thrown off the bridge. Flowers, a ring, even a baby. Anyone who hears the song can think what they want, but the real message of the song, if there must be a message, revolves around the nonchalant way the family talks about the suicide. They sit there eating their peas and apple pie and talking without even realizing that Billy Joe's girlfriend is sitting at the table. I think what she's saying there is that it wouldn't matter if you did know what was thrown off the bridge because you still wouldn't be able to connect with this girl's trauma. Her own family can't connect to it, and you don't even know this girl's name. It's about how nobody can ever truly feel anyone else's pain. And most of the time, they can't even be bothered to try. Same thing with Billy Joe's girlfriend. The loss of Billy Joe McAllister is so devastating for her that it eclipses the grief you'd expect her to have for her own father's much more recent passing. Instead of being there for her now traumatized mother, this girl's off picking flowers and throwing them off a bridge. These are complex themes for major label pop music of any era. The fact that a 25-year-old kid was able to present this to the world in such a neat package is impressive. Some people might say it's a little too good to be true. Those people believe Bobby Gentry did not write this song. Part of episode four called Bobby Gentry Exit Stage Left from Cocaine and Rhinestones. I spoke to Tyler Mahan Co. from his home and the home of country music, Nashville, Tennessee. And I asked him why country music has a bit of an image problem and seems to get neglected in favour of other music. In the United States of America, for a long time, the mainstream opinion of country music has been that it's not cool. You know, it's dumb and only old people like it, you know. As a result, there's not very much interest in the people who made it. And a lot of people just write off this entire world. But there are people who know that it's great, you know, and there are people who've written a lot of books. I mean, a lot of what I'm talking about has been written in books. A lot of really good books have been written about country music, but also a lot of really bad books have been written about country music. And the problem is that since we don't have so many people talking about this stuff, we aren't getting a, that many perspectives in the mainstream, at least. Sort of the unspoken theme of the show is that these are stories that I've been hearing, you know, my entire life. And often I would find out that the way I heard the story the first time isn't right. You know, if I looked into it myself, I would find out the truth about it. So sort of the unspoken theme of the show is me taking this stuff that I think I know or everyone thinks they know and just going as deep as I possibly can to figure out what is and isn't true. Like I, if I can't find a good source for something, then I probably shouldn't be running my mouth about it, you know? 
And why the decision to make a podcast? Because it sounds like it's quite a literary endeavour in that you start with texts and books. Why a podcast? And could it turn into a book one day, do you think? Oh, it, it's definitely going to be... There, there will be books written around this for sure. But it, this is just the way that people like to hear stories now. I mean, it, podcasts are the new thing. It's like the democratization of radio. It's, it's a pretty incredible thing that's happening. And I think that it's only just now getting started. I tell everyone I know, if you think you've got a good idea for a podcast, you should at least try to make it especially if you think it's something important. But yeah, if, you, if you've got something to say, you can say it, you can get it out there and you can get it heard on a much wider scale. So this was just a way to maybe bring some, first of all, really great content to this medium that had none of it. That's the other thing is there wasn't even a bad podcast about the history of country music when I started. There were zero and that's just mind-blowing to me. I, I assumed that someone was already doing this. I looked for it to listen to it, and then it wasn't there. And that's pretty much when I realized that I had to try to do it myself. And the stories that you tell, I mean, you do it, I get the feeling you're almost approaching it almost like a work of scholarship and that you're not, some of the details could be portrayed in a slightly salacious or titillating way, but you don't really do that. You... you try and tell the story as best you can. You present alternative versions of the same history and kind of say, well, this is the one I think is the most likely. And then at the end of the of the episode, which some of them, you know, are an hour and a half long each episode, you almost have this kind of footnote section where you are picking up on things perhaps that you've heard since recording the piece. All right, liner notes. Please believe me when I tell you that I am extremely aware of the very prominent theory of what is in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. I've been informed that T. Tommy Cutterer's last name is actually pronounced Cutrer or Coutrer. And Tom didn't only do commercials for Tyson Chicken. You can find a ton of Tom T. Hall commercials on YouTube. I've even seen him joke about how many product endorsements he did. I think you call them liner notes, don't you, at the end of each episode. What's the intention there? With the first thing you talked about, it's just this really matters. These are human beings that we're talking about. You know, another problem that I have with the way that country music gets looked at is people have a tendency to reduce these people to cartoonish figures, you know, and that's not nice. Uh, It's... They deserve better than that. These people deserve better than that. These are the original rock stars, man. And they matter. You don't get all the stuff that people love about mainstream rock music. That does not happen without country music. It just doesn't happen without country music. You don't get Elvis without country music, you know. And it's not often that country musicians are treated with that respect. Johnny Cash is probably the only one that I can think of that almost everyone's like, oh, yeah, he's great. So yeah, these are these are people and it's what they deserve and it's the the full title of the show is Cocaine and Rhinestones the History of Country Music. You know, I'm doing this cuz the music matters and it's important and I'm not doing this to take advantage of as you said salacious details of stories. If if it's not relevant to the music or who this person really was, then I probably don't need to be talking about it. You know, if someone's got a crazy family member that's always in tabloids, if that's not relevant to the situation, it's none of my business, you know? And, uh, 
the liner notes are, I don't really know why I decided to do that. I guess that it would have felt dishonest for me to sit down and tell all these stories and act like other people hadn't done all of this work that made it possible for me to even do that, you know? So I knew that I at least had to acknowledge the writers and because sometimes I'm agreeing with them and sometimes I'm disagreeing with them too. I can't very well talk about a very well-known but incorrect version of one of these stories without talking about where this, the, that came from, you know, like where people are getting that information and I'm opinionated, you know, I have ideas about a lot of this stuff and that doesn't necessarily seem like it always needs to be injected in the story itself. You know, I should probably just tell you the story about the person and make that be as good as it can be. And then if I feel like there's more I could have said somewhere, just save that for the end, you know. The other interesting thing I've noticed that you do is at the front of every show, there are these what sound like digressions. So you'll talk about um, the Bobby Gentry episode, for example. You talk about the idea of celebrity and fame. Sometimes we imagine a celebrity as the best version of ourselves, achieving the goals in the world that we would achieve if we had that body or those opportunities, answering questions and reacting to circumstances the way we like to think we would. And that can go on for like eight to ten minutes at the front of the episode before we even really hear Bobby Gentry's name, which is is kind of an unconventional approach because the conventional approach would be you find a few titillating stories and sprinkle them at the front to kind of lure people in, if you like, to the story. But you don't do that at all, do you? No, I that one, that episode was pretty scary. I felt like I took some pretty big risks making that one. It was pretty early in the season. As you said, I think you're just listening to me talk about what fame is, what being famous is for a solid 10 minutes before you hear, I I think you do hear Bobby singing before I start doing that though. So you do hear her voice, but that's sort of the opposite of the liner notes thing is I don't know how anyone could approach understanding her story without having that conversation about fame beforehand. Because if you just tell that story It's like, well, why would anyone do that, you know, and you can get it out of the way. And it's also just it's fun from a storytelling angle to something that people may not know about my father is that he went through this phase of being obsessed with stage magic, you know, illusions like David Copperfield type stuff. And for a while there, he was touring with a music and magic show. And I was in the magic show. Like I was a part of the doing the tricks and I, he would buy me instruction manuals, how to do like all this close up magic. And I got really into it too, you know, sort of like a father son bonding thing, all these cup and ball tricks, card tricks, coin tricks. And what that is, is misdirection. You know, that's what stage magic is. And I didn't even realize it until after I had already completed the first season, but I guarantee you that misdirection being such a big part of my childhood has a lot to do with the way that I like to tell stories. And it really is just fun. It's fun to say, Hey, look at this. And in your other hand, you're loading the payoff, you know, you're, you're getting ready to deliver something that no one sees coming, you know, and that's really fun. And I think that, Good storytelling is often that, you know, it's often about figuring out when to do the thing, you know, when to do the magic trick. (laughs) 
So you you were a musician in your dad's band as well, were you? So you were a professional musician, but you also had a sideline in magic tricks as well. <laughs> well, yeah, he stopped doing the magic thing. This was when I was very, very young. So then I had to go to school and stuff like that. And then I dropped out of school at the age of 15 because I was getting brought home in police cars too often. And my mom was talking about military school, which didn't sound like a great time <laughs> to me. So, yeah, I dropped out of high school and I went on tour and yeah, he, he, my dad put me in his band and then I learned how to play guitar and I got good and I sort of took over band leader duties of like hiring the musicians and all that stuff. And it was a wild and crazy time. <laughs> and then your dad, this is according to Wikipedia, so it's not perhaps the, the greatest of sources, but it sounded like your dad effectively sacked his whole band, including you, at, at one point in his career. It, it started with just like one professional relationship falling apart. I don't know if people know this about David Allen Coe, but I mean, he's burned a lot of bridges in his career. And it's not hard to find people who have no communication with him anymore. So I've, I've, I witnessed that a lot from the inside. And then when I realized that I was about to be put on the outside, <laughs> I've had seen it happen from the other side so many times that I knew that there was just no point in uh, trying to reason or apply logic so it just all sort of like fell apart. And it was a pretty rough time for me after that because uh, I had no job experience and a pretty solid criminal record and couldn't get a job, you know, like I couldn't get hired to work a cash register at like a fast food place. So I was giving blood plasma twice a week to buy groceries. And then I taught myself enough music theory to be able to give guitar lessons. And I made enough money to pay out my lease so I didn't screw my roommates over until I could come back to Nashville and sort of worked in marketing for a while. Because, you know, having 13 years on tour is seen as job experience in Nashville. And now, I mean, after everything I've worked at in Nashville, I've seen the venue side of things. I've seen the manager, promoter, agent, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, it, it really is. A, it, it took me a long time and winding route to get to where I'm at. But all of those places that I was at for little points in time really do contribute perspective to what I'm doing now. So yeah, it's not like I would go back and change anything, you know. You must be pretty happy though with the way Cocaine and Rhinestones has been received. I think you've already said it exceeded your expectations for it already. Oh, wildly. Yeah, this this has been the best year of my life for sure. Yes, uh, I, this is what I'm going to get to do for as long as I want to do it, because people this is what people want me to be doing. And that's a really great feeling to know that I made this thing just 100 percent the way I wanted it to be. You know, maybe I could have been a little bit better at certain technical aspects of making a podcast at the beginning but I do think that I got good enough pretty quickly. And I made a show just exactly the way that I wanted it to be. I didn't have a team of people telling me what to do. I didn't test it. I didn't do test screenings and change things. And it's a really rare thing to be able to do that as a creative person, to just get something made exactly the way you want it to be made. So to be able to do that is really satisfying. But then to also have it so well received to the point where I can just keep doing it the way that I want to. It's not like there's anything I need to change about it now. It's really fantastic. I don't, I 
definitely never thought that I would be doing anything like this. Feeling this satisfied with the way my life is going is a really new thing, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. <laughs> Cocaine and Rhinestones host, producer, sound engineer, and editor. Tyler Mahan Co. And if you like the sound of the show, there are 14 episodes already out there to get through. I listened to the ones about Tom T. Hall and the Leuven Brothers and enjoyed both of them too. And he's just about to start writing season two, which he says will feature more cocaine and fewer rhinestones. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hulu.